The following podcast was produced by attorneys licensed to practice law in Indiana, but laws vary state by state. So if you have a legal question, contact a qualified attorney in your area. The information in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be relied on as legal advice. Hello, welcome back to the Indy Law Pod. My name is Matt Bigler, former deputy prosecutor and current personal injury attorney at Leidendorf Law. This is a podcast by lawyers for people who may not have a legal education. Each episode, we dive into a different legal area or law-related topic. It's been about two months since we published our last episode back during March Madness when we spoke with Assistant Commissioner of the American East Conference, Abby Howard, about NCAA investigations. I apologize to both of our listeners, but I've been very busy at work and coaching my kids' soccer team, Go Watermelons, and this is just a side project to do for funsies. But we're back, and I'm sitting with my friend and frequent guest, Attorney Mark Lopez of the Mark Lopez Law Firm in Indianapolis, to do a lightning round recapping some of the goings-on in the legal world. Welcome back, Mark. Oh, so excited to be here. Um, anything big happened in your life the last couple months? Well, I want to say that I'm not coaching my daughter's soccer team, but go Orange Tigers. <laughs> and I'm uh, very excited for the U5 Soccer League. A lot of blast. Um, no, I've been real busy, and I'm always happy when it's busy. Obviously, I'm a criminal defense attorney, so maybe society isn't happy. But I'm overly very happy, and I'm really excited to be back here with you. All right, so let's just get to it and talk about some law. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is on Valentine's Day, there was a school shooting in Parkland, Florida, that resulted in the deaths of 17 people. A month later, school children across the country staged a walkout of school to protest gun violence and the current state of gun laws. Getting away from the gun debate, I want to focus on the issues it raised on freedom of speech and schools and how that works. So for people who don't know, explain how freedom of speech rights works for kids at school. We know there is a lot of media attention on these uh, kids participating, basically participating in the democratic process by protesting, and they're saying that they have not seen this level of involvement by, you hate to call them kids, but these are kids since the Vietnam War, and uh, for someone like me, I'm amazed that these kids are doing this, but um, essentially the main case is Tinker, the United States Supreme Court case happened back in the 60s, basically kids were wearing armbands to public schools, and the United States Supreme Court basically said their whole thing is it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to the freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. And so that is basically the, the beginning point when you start now analyzing whether or not school kids can protest like this. What What is the limit using the, the Tinker test? Um, what is the limit on a kid's speech rights at school? So essentially... Would their contact materially and substantially interfere with the requirements of appropriate discipline and the operation of the school? And so, you know, wearing an armband in a public school, as long as it doesn't say something explicit or vulgar, I suppose, can't necessarily be argued that, hey, this is interfering with discipline or conduct at the actual school, which is why this case is so interesting. The case, this situation is so interesting because these kids clearly are disrupting the um, conduct and discipline at the school. They're actually getting up out of their classroom, and I don't think that necessarily is covered by the Tinker case. That was, I, I agree with that. That was something I had thought about when I saw uh, all the news coverage on these protests, is this is less like, you know, the armbands or wearing, you know, black shirts to protest a thing. I mean, this is like in Dead Poet Society, getting up in the middle of the class and sing, singing or reciting, oh, captain, my captain. I mean, you are disrupting the learning process. And Good for the kids to protest and do whatever they're going to do, but when they when news coverage would talk about free speech rights, it seemed 
like it was misplaced. It was the wrong use of the free speech precedent. I totally agree. Or application of the free speech case. I, I think that it does strike me as somewhat counter to what Tinker's saying. Uh, and I appreciate that the schools are supportive of kids making a protest. But if a single student decided to walk out of the first 15 minutes of every third period all year to protest something, anything, and it could be very sincerely held belief, they'd be punished, wouldn't they? Absolutely. You can't just disrupt other kids' learnings and then... I, I agree. It's, it's not a freedom of speech situation. Everyone call, calls it that, but... Um, you know, I remember I ditched school a couple times in high school. I got in-school detentions the next day. So, ah... Uh, and I'm not making a value-based judgment on this, but I do agree that you simply just can't walk out of school. That definitely is a violation of Tinker case as cited by the United States Supreme Court. This may be the unpopular opinion. One thing that struck me is that you know colleges uh, were saying they wouldn't count discipline against the kids on admissions. Um, the schools said they wouldn't discipline the kids for participating. I think they should have. Not because I have a problem with kids protesting generally or this particular protest or anything like that. But I think what makes an effective protest is that you have something to lose. Absolutely. Um, you go back to Mexico city in 1968, the Olympics, you know, the three sprinters, uh, the two Americans and the Australian sprinter, you know, the two Americans raising their, their fist during the national anthem. And then, you know, all three of them in their own countries, the two in America, and then the sprinter from Australia, they were blackballed. I mean, they made a protest point, and it wrecked their their careers. Um, the civil rights movement. I mean, people got bitten by dogs and you know hit with fire hoses and arrested and, and roughed up. Not that I want to see kids get roughed up, but the point is, people had something to lose. They did it anyway, and that's what made change. So and this is you know, the examples you gave are historical examples, and they're actually fantastic. When I mean, you read those stories, you know that's what makes them meaningful. And just the counterpoint of that is, New York University students they were protesting something another in April and the school actually contacted their parents and they said, Hey, if this kid gets suspended, they'll lose their financial aid. You're going to be in the hook for housing. And literally the protests were done later that day. So, you know, this days long protest was finished with one phone call to some parents. And, uh, you know, when there are no consequences, why not protest Any, yeah. anything and everything? But that's what also makes protests amazing when they do have a uh, contest. I'm not trying to ruin kids' lives or anything like that, but that's what gives the protest meaning. And I laughed at this New York University um, kids. Kiboshed it that easy. As soon as they couldn't live in downtown New York. Oh, hold on a second. Let's get this taken care of. So um, I'm, I'm really excited to see civic engagement by younger people, though. And I think that they're even talking about like just voting, which they have the most recent records for. It's just abysmal for 18 yeah. to 25-year-olds. It's less than half of people voting over the age of 65. So... I'm interested to see where this goes. And moving on, in recent news from my old stomping grounds of Warwick County, Indiana, on April 30th, a life without parole, or an LWOP case, for those in the business, uh, a trial began in Warwick County. An Evansville man, Isaiah Hagen, stands accused of the murder of 20-year-old University of Southern Indiana student Haley Rathberger. The case had been set to last uh, for three weeks. On, the, I believe, the second day of evidence, a mistrial was declared because one of the jurors had seen the defendant in a holding cell and spoke to the other juries about it, jurors about it. So what's the rule on trial procedure or trial process when it comes to in-custody defendants? So, you know, when I was a prosecutor, basically I was told you can never have the jury see a 
defendant in jail garb, chains, or anything like that. And so this is like the first day of training. So you never actually sat down and say, why not? And so I find this a little bit comically hypocritical that somebody witnessed somebody in jail garb, and so they do a mistrial. You know, I've been part of jury trials where stuff that never should have been in front of the jury got in front of the jury, and the judge reads a, an instruction, hey, just ignore that. And we go on as if it's just fine. But the issue is that you have the right to a fair trial. You don't have the right to a perfect trial, but you have the right to a fair trial under the 14th Amendment. And basically, seeing jury seeing somebody in jail garb messes with that jury's perception of innocent until proven guilty. And as part of a bedrock a foundation, you are innocent until proven guilty. We want to avoid that at any cost. And I've never been to Warwick County, but I'm sure they're not excited about having to redo or restart a trial again. I mean, funds are limited. This is a serious situation. And in the particular case that I read about this, the prosecutor was in agreement. Um, usually, prosecutors are fighting tooth and nail against things like this because they don't want to have to do things twice. And, you know, reality, I suspect the prosecutor knows that that's not going to be the biggest deciding factor with other evidence, but we have to follow our constitution and our rights. Yeah, I mean, as much as the prosecutor wouldn't want to do that, you know, restart the trial. He definitely doesn't want to have to do the trial two complete times. Oh my God. Um, because yeah. And his comment that, Hey, it was done. Nothing we can do about it. It has to be mistried. Um, yeah, he definitely doesn't want to get overturned on appeal and have to do a whole three week thing all over again. Oh, I can't even imagine. Um, that the longest be... jury trial I've done is four days and I was exhausted. <laughs> I can't imagine three weeks. Yeah, have you ever had something like that happen where not just in jail garb, uh, but someone in, in chains, like in, in leg irons or something, in cuffs at, at the trial where it's been seen? I have done a civil trial where the person was a resident of the Department of Corrections and they brought him over and the judge had no qualms having him do the civil trial in orange jumpsuit and chains. And um, ultimately we ended up did giving him, we ended up getting him a suit and they got their handcuffs while I was still a leg chains on. We tried to hide that. So that's my only experience with that. And then for civil side, no one cares. <laughs> we're totally we're suing for money. We're totally fine. The jury knowing that the plaintiff or defendant is a criminal. Well, and you're talking about the uh, you know the ways to hide it. Uh, you know, having a suit. I know the PD agency here, the public defenders. They they must have a closet somewhere full of suits of all sizes to put in people who are in custody, so no one sees them in jailhouse orange. Um, and then the the tables will have usually skirts around them, uh, tablecloths, so that if someone's in leg irons, for example, if they're a flight risk, that it's not seen. Uh, those are the two that I've seen. And I've even seen it where a, def a defendant is in custody representing himself, and he's wearing leg irons, and so the judge doesn't allow the uh, anybody to do anything except stand up, or they won't even let them stand up so that they don't rattle. Even the prosecutors. So yeah. in that case, hey, everyone got the jester. So that so nothing looks different. So the so you don't have the prosecutor walking all around, and the jury says, "Well, why is this guy always sitting at the table?" So that that's something I've seen happen too, to protect against. I give that judge a lot of credit for giving, making sure they're level ground. I mean, that's yeah, that's impressive. Judges don't like changing the way they do things. So, <laughs> oh, it would drive them crazy here having to you know excuse the jury every time there's a you know bench conference or a, oh god an yeah. objection. <laughs> all right, next I want to talk about the bar exam, or as I call it, my lost summer. Uh, where I gained about 15 pounds. Um, a report came out in April that the pass rate for the February 2018 bar exam in Indiana was at an all-time low of 47% for all takers. For first-time takers, there was a 67% pass rate, and for repeat takers, just 26% passed. 
people generally don't know what the bar exam is. So before we dig into the numbers, can you give us some background? Uh, what is the stated purpose of the bar exam? It, the stated purpose of the bar exam is simple, to demonstrate that you have minimal competency to be a lawyer. Um, we're not looking to have A+, plus. we're just looking for minimal competency. I think the maximum number of points is 400. I think when I took the bar exam, it was 266 to pass. So you could miss a good old, more than 100 points to still be sworn in as a lawyer. And the bar exam essentially is one day multiple choice. The second day, it's half the day doing essays, the other half doing a, a practical application. So you get a fact pattern, you get asked a question, how would you do this if you were a lawyer? And it is stressful. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But, and, and to uh, go a little deeper on that, the multiple choice section is called the MBE, and that counts for half of your total points. Uh, the practical section is called the MPT, the multi practical test i think or so, multi-practice multi practice test and it would include something like a statue a, a fake statue a fake case law and a fake question where you have to apply it um which i found to be the easiest part if you'd ever interned anywhere and actually done any legal work it was a lot easier to do than uh the mbe which is terribly hard the multiple so choice the, the, the multiple choice one there's four possible answers and two of them sound fine Literally, two of them sound like him. It could be either one. Yeah. So it's really nuanced. And uh, it's funny that you say the practical part if you intern, because literally one of the questions they asked me was something I dealt with. And um, I was just, I hope I knocked it out of the park. I mean, I'm talking to you today. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the third part being the Indiana essays, where you're giving, given, I think, six essays out of like 15 or 18 topics. You have no idea what the topics will be. They'll have a main topic and then subtopics usually. Um, and that one's a huge crapshoot because if you decide you don't have enough time to study for everything and you're not going to study bailments <laughs> and it ends up being a bailments question, you're just up the creek and there's nothing you can do about it. And um, the multiple choice is the same questions a kid in California gets, same questions Indiana gets, but the essays are Indiana specific. And uh, that's that, is, that is funny with the bailments. Yeah, I, I walked out of my lecture for secure transactions and that was one of my questions in 2006. And that's how I know there's a Jesus watching above judging sometimes. And back in the day when we took the uh, the bar exam, you had to handwrite your essay questions. Now they're able to type them. I think they might all have to be typed, actually. You, you could you could have typed it when we took it, but you had to get a doctor's note. But now every single person types it. And um, I mean, you could write it like theoretically, but I couldn't even imagine having someone to grade that. That was the worst. Oh, yeah. Handwriting it was the worst. <laughs> Uh, trying to just keep that organized. Um, the bar exam is offered nationally uh, twice a year in February and July because, like Mark said, everyone gets the same uh, MBE, multiple choice questions. So they only put out that bank of questions twice a year. So every bar exam in the country is going to be going on at least one of those days because that's when the multiple choice is offered. How do you prepare for the test? Well, it's funny. You talk to these older attorneys. Oh, I just read the the updated briefs. For the just, or I just read a book and went to the library. That's total garbage. There's programs out there, and for me personally, I paid to have a bar review course, and half the day I was with a lecture taking notes. The other half I was actually applying those notes, and it was like a full time job. Absolutely, uh, it was insane. I I spent the whole summer, other than the bar review class, basically laying in the pool. Granted, I was drinking beer and just doing MBE questions, just drilling questions constantly. And it was a full-time job is the way to describe it. The test is the test is hard. I guess we can agree with that. But, or is it as hard as people think it is? Because when I took it, so many people I knew I would talk to would say, you know, no, uh, nobody passes the first time. 
we had like a 78% pass rate for first time takers. I mean, usually it hovers between mid seventies to low eighties. So is it not that hard or how do you, how you, would you perceive it? You know, I think it's hard. I think a lot of people that go to law school are people that are going to be studying for this bar exam. So just because our year had 78% pass rate, first time test takers, I don't think that it means it's not hard, but I think people that gravitate towards law school who are going to practice for a whole summer to take this exam are going to be people that would do it correctly. Well, and, and if you're going to treat it like a job, I mean, I, I didn't feel like it was overly difficult because I feel like we were prepared. Oh, absolutely. And that that's the biggest end of it. So getting to the numbers from the report, I mean, first, the winter test always has lower pass rates. Um, do you have any ideas why or any theories? You know, the, there's always two different numbers for pass rates. There's first-time test takers and there's repeat test takers. And the repeat test taker number is always significantly lower than first-timer. And that's probably because, you know, if you didn't pass the prior bar exam and you didn't do anything different the second time, it's not very surprising you didn't pass. So there's always a lower repeat. Now, I've always found it interesting with the first-time test takers have a lower test rate, pass rate too. And I think that's probably just semantics. I mean, if you graduate, if you finish law school in December, right off, right off the bat, there's Christmas. And then the bar exam is in February, usually the third or fourth week of February. You only have about a month and a half to actually study for that. Whereas you take it in the summertime, you really almost have two and a half months. So there's more time to prepare. Um, but that's just complete conjecture. I mean, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I never considered that about the the timeline. I was thinking that the February first-time takers are typically going to be a non-traditional students. There are people in the part-time program uh, at, at the schools, which has two important points. Uh, first, uh, they typically have families. These are people that are typically working full-time jobs and or have families. Um, so where I could go home from studying at the at the bar review and spend, spend five hours in my basement and in my pool practicing questions. They don't have that chance. They, they have to go to the soccer game. They have to go to the kids program. They have to make dinner for the kids, put them in the bath, do all that stuff. Um, that that's hard. Um, second relating to, uh, the part-time program, the admissions rates, like the, the LSAT scores typically are somewhat lower for the part-time program. The four year part-time program here at you know, IU Indy or McKinney now, uh, than it is. So I, I don't know that it's a necessarily a quality issue, um, but I think they have a lot going against them because of mostly the life pressures and, and family pressures. And like you said, with the timeline, which I hadn't really considered before, that that's, it's really hard. And it's, I mean, it is a full-time job to study and to try to mix that with a legit full-time job plus kids would be just, God bless them for doing it because I couldn't. Well, I had a lot of friends in the the evening program when I was graduating and I didn't realize how hard they were working balancing school work kids now that i have one child i honestly <laughs> got to feel overwhelmed all the time i can't even imagine trying to go to law school right now so anybody that i may have said a rude comment to back in 2003 2006 i apologize if you're listening do you think the bar exam is a useful or archaic tradition you know it's definitely archaic and it's not that old though because you know there's attorneys practicing in indianapolis today that got didn't have to do a bar exam they literally just got sworn in by their friends. So when you say archaic, it hasn't been going on for centuries by any means. At the same time, I have no interest in changing it. When I was in property class in law school, the property professor looked at all of us and said, hey, this stuff doesn't make sense. There's, there's 10,000 different ways to do it, and there's better ways to do it. But the reality is only ones who can change it are those who understand it. And once you understand it, you don't really have any hope of changing it. And um, I don't know if there's a better way. 
I don't either. And I, I think having an attorney, even though that's only testing minimal competence, I mean, don't you want it to be selective? Because anybody can put a, a website out and say, I'm going to be your aggressive defense and experienced in criminal law. I mean, people do puffery on, on websites anyway, much less if somebody really doesn't know what the world they're doing. Oh, yeah. And it's hard to filter that out. I, I think it would do a disservice to the public, you know, to the client base, if attorneys were able just to go out there and talk whatever silliness and have no idea what they're doing. I never thought about the whole, like, you know, because, you know, Matt and I both see all the time people that don't know what they're doing, at least from our perspective, advertising, we're the best and the greatest, this and this. And I mean, at least with the bar exam, they've been tested over some of the stuff, at least. <laughs> or at least minim- minimally competent. Yeah, so um, that's interesting with this. You know, we don't want to make regulations to limit free speech, but yeah, there are some attorneys who probably have no business <laughs> doing their practice areas. It's almost like a way to stop the floodgates, but also to give the public a little bit, like, hey, yeah. They've at least studied for this topic <laughs> that it could have possibly been on the exam. That's interesting. Uh, a final thing to talk about is some news that came out in the last couple of weeks, and this is this is May 9th we're talking. Bill Cosby found oh, yeah. guilty of uh, it wasn't rape; it was a sexual assault. Some sex, yeah, it was some whatever we might call rape in Indiana, or whatever it is in Pennsylvania. Do you have any thoughts on the evidence that was used against him? And by that, I mean. One of the big pieces of evidence that got this ball rolling was deposition testimony he had given in a civil suit years before. Yeah, so the lady that was his, the, the basis of the criminal charge actually sued him civilly. And 2006, 2007, Bill Cosby gave depositions and um, they're explicit. Basically, he admitted, yeah, I give these women uh, quaaludes um, so they pass out and we can have sexual relations. And he admitted all this 2006, 2007, and then the criminally charged 2018, and they bring this lady in, and she's already been paid off. So two of the huge things for this, number one, what attorney would let their client just make these admissions, even in the civil context? And then also in the actual trial itself, in the retrial, because the first time ended in a mistrial, but the second time they allowed four or five other females to come in and say, yeah, he did the same exact stuff to me. Well, let's start with the first part with, you know, an attorney letting him speak at the deposition. Can you plead the fifth in a civil deposition? Absolutely. You can definitely plead the fifth in any context you want. Unfortunately, only in a criminal defense situation are you protected from having a negative inference. So if you start pleading the fifth at a civil case, they can assume you're hiding something. And that's totally acceptable. And so, Matt, when you were doing the fatal alcohol crash investigations and prosecutions, did you ever have the civil court stay things? That's one of the big remedies is, hey, if there's a criminal case and there's a civil case, stay the civil court until the criminal works itself out. I have zero experience with that. And I'm wondering if you had something because, you know, more litigious with the fatal alcohol crash stuff. As I wouldn't know when I was doing the criminal work, I I don't I wouldn't have known what was going on with the with the civil cases because that was outside my bailiwick. I think I've had cases now uh, as a civil attorney that there's a corresponding criminal case that will we'll typically wait to file on uh, until the criminal case either completely wraps up through plea agreement or trial or what have you. And I've done that. And the only time we would file suit would be if we were coming up on the statute of limitations and we, and we needed to to protect our clients' rights. I, I haven't had a situation where we filed suit with a criminal case pending and it's been required to stay it. Usually... And the reason we wait 
mostly two is um, there's a if there's a criminal case pending a lot of times there's good enough evidence there that the insurance company would look at it and still be willing to settle they're not going to just straight deny it but even if they were wanting to settle we'd still want to see the full extent of our client's injuries absolutely um, so we, we may not know how mm-hmm. you know the injury is the treatment's going to go long-term issues you may not you may not know that for a year or 18 months which can make a difference in, in certain cases so yeah, I've not had that happen um, where they've actually stayed a civil case. We have a nice two-year statute of limitations for... Yeah, some places have one year. And... Yeah, some places have one year, so you can see. And then, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the case law dealing with staying the, staying, staying the civil case while the criminal case is going on, it's basically out of fairness to the defendant because you could see how prosecutors could see how someone pled the fifth at that position but also didn't, didn't do certain things other ways and kind of figure out the legal strategy. And so courts are supposed to be pretty freely liberal with the stays. Well, I, I remember as a prosecutor, um, it was a case where a guy had a guy crashed his car drunk into the canal in Broderpool. And, you know, swore he didn't do it. You know, somebody else, it's always some guy I just met, you know, at the bar. I just let him drive my car because, you know, he looked like a trustworthy fellow. Classic defense. <laughs> and, you know, he said it wasn't him. And I'm pretty sure that he was soaking wet too, but he says he was in the passenger. Anyway, he filed a claim with his insurance company because he had crashed his car into the canal. You have a duty to cooperate with your insurance company. And he didn't. And uh, somehow or the other, we got his insurance company played ball. He claimed that his, he was driving in this, and that was a statement he used, you know, a statement used against him that helped solidify the case because, you know, it's it's hard to disprove and a negative, especially when there actually is no other person there. Uh, but yeah, but he made a statement in a civil context that ended up coming back to bite him pretty hard. Is there any privilege between an insured and their insured? At the time, I didn't know. Um, and it wasn't my case, so I just was getting all this secondhand. Yeah, there is. It's called the Ritchie versus Chapel case, uh, where if you have a, your insurance company has a duty to defend you and you have a duty to report and to cooperate, that it's like a, a privileged situation. That might be different where, I mean, I don't know if you're sure if it, how it figures in when you're trying to defraud people and you're lying about it, um, one way or the other. But yeah, so I don't, I don't know how, I don't know if the insurance company should have done that. Because yeah, I, I remember this case and this, I remember the prosecutor's case. This wasn't my, my case either, but um, it's amazing when, you know, you know, we talk about bar exam, minimal competency, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, it's very helpful that I know the Chapel and Ritchie case, Chapel v. Ritchie case, and even though I don't practice actively civil litigation, I do know that they can't use it against them. And I'd probably learn that from bar exam preparation. Yeah, right. So if you read those depositions, it just seems almost unreal that the attorney in the room didn't would, say, would, hey, have, would have considered hey, it's a possibility. Yeah, why don't you uh, hold off on answering that question? Let's call a criminal defense friend. And, um, you know, another issue might have been the deposition might have been taken in a different state. Versus, I don't know the whole civil side, but I'm just reading the depositions. It's just insane that anyone would not plead the fifth to that, especially somebody with money. You know, I'm used to seeing clients or individuals, you know, not very sophisticated. They don't understand what was going on. Or they claim not to understand what was going on, even though they've been read Miranda. They still make statements. But, you know, there's no argument. Bill Cosby, he's rich then, he's rich now. He can afford the best attorneys. Well, that's a thing, too, is I noticed this. Um, you know, we're in a city, so most people do one kind of law. Or they try to. They, they, you know, we're not allowed to be specialists, but you know, people do one type of thing or another. Fewer and fewer people have a general practice. That you get those 
silk stocking firms, those fancy high-priced rich person lawyers in civil law, they may not have ever done a lick of criminal work, but they may not have even realized it, that anything was going to be an issue. You know, that, and I don't know whose attorneys were, but I mean, I, I could see it being a very possible, you know, very possible situation where they sit through this deposition. They don't think anything's off kilter and they just roll with it. And well, these attorneys, they got it sealed. So they knew going in, it was sealed at some point, but I can't imagine someone went like, it could be unsealed. <laughs> um, you know, Indianapolis particularly, there are these silk stocking law firms. And I will say that I've seen a few of these hire criminal defense attorneys to head up investigations. Um, and so now a lot of these bigger firms have, you know, one or two guys that do criminal defense or practice criminal defense. And they do bring them in for these type of things, but hopefully to avoid situations like this. <laughs> and we're not sad Bill Cosby's being brought to justice. We're just, from a legal standpoint, it just seems absolutely... Now, practice that somebody answered these questions about their attorney being every five seconds. I wouldn't answer that. Oh, yeah. hold on a second. And let's be very clear. I grew up with Bill Cosby. I love the Cosby show. This guy's a monster. <laughs> there's no argument about that. I read the civil depositions. There's no doubt. I mean, there's... So we're just talking from a... Legal a le point of view. Yeah, legal point of view. Every week. Well, the other thing that you'd mentioned is, you know, bringing out other accusers with a similar story, even though they weren't... I don't know if the statute of limitations had passed or why they couldn't file with these other cases, uh, but they didn't. But they still brought these other people out to tell similar stories. Why is that allowed? You know, I guess there was 18 people the state gave notice to the defense they wanted to call, and the judge made the state pick it's either four or six of the best ones. And, you know, I'm not, the, the article simply state that you're allowed to do that in Pennsylvania, under Pennsylvania law. And Indiana... I think you would get it under evidence rule 406, which is to show a habit of a person. And um, you can't necessarily say they're guilty because of this, but if they do something consistently the same way, you can argue that, hey, at the time this crime occurred, they were doing it as they did it in the past. This is something that I've never had to litigate. And so if you ever have to do anything like this... I've not had to do this particular thing. And when Mark says 406, he's talking about the Indiana Rule of Evidence 406. It would also come in, I think, under Indiana Rule of Evidence 404B, which is talking about prior bad acts. It doesn't have to be something that you've been charged or convicted of, but a prior bad act that can show a plan, motive, uh, opportunity, uh, lack of mistake, you know, knowledge, all these things that it can show that if you do something in a certain way, um, that's your MO, your modus operandi, that it goes to show things that it lets evidence in that otherwise wouldn't have been able to come in. Uh, a case that I'm familiar with that had the same issue was um, the state of Indiana versus Quinardell Wells. He was a serial rapist in Indianapolis that was a dangerous guy. And he had been he had beaten rape cases multiple times. I mean, he was just his his thing was to uh, he would rape prostitutes. It was his that was his target. So anyway, this was a case that lasted for, you know, ever. I mean, it started when I was an intern and it didn't, he didn't get convicted for years. Or it started before I was an intern, but happened when I was there. Uh, but during his trial, they brought out, I mean, four or five girls that would trade sex for drugs. And they all testified that, you know, this guy in this car did it this way, said these things. And he had, you know, he had done things so similar over time, you know, telling them to do certain things and a certain way and the verbiage and they could identify them. I mean, it was, I mean, it was crazy. 
And it went all the way, I think, to the Indiana Supreme Court and whether that was proper. And they ruled that it was in that circumstance. Yeah. You know, and it is very case sensitive. And he wasn't charged with all, all of those. He was just one. Uh, there might have been more than one in that case, but it, he wasn't charged. I don't think he was. It was either that he wasn't charged with all of them or he was charged with all of them. They were doing them all at the same time. Okay. Where otherwise you might move to do them one at a time. So it doesn't look like, you know, you're not getting found guilty because of the avalanche of, of accusations. Like, so oh, his, his, his defense attorney's argument, Hey, this is prejudicial. Let's do them all separate. That same evidence is going to come out under 404 B. Right. It, it, either way it would have yeah. come in, but no, I mean, so a lot of my civil, a lot of, a lot of civil lawyers I'm on listservs with are just blown away that that happens, but that's actually, you know, that's something that's, we learned about. We took the bar exam. Um, and that does, you know, it, it may seem unfair, but if you do something something consistently the same way, you can't always be like, oh, I never did that before. And that'd be disingenuous to try or fact. The the last thing I want to talk about with the Cosby case was, did you see the expert that they brought up? I just saw a news report on this. When it happened. They had an expert that they testified about, I think it was about drug interactions or something like that. Defense or state? It was, a, def- it was a defense expert. Okay. And they'd asked him about um, whether he had any current licenses and his answer was his only current license was his driver's license and that he had to go he had to google some of the effects of some of these drugs now maybe he was trying to be funny which you know that maybe you know know your audience you know not the time and place to be doing that you know know, humor in a misdemeanor case read, read, read the room a little bit um but if it was your expert, wouldn't you just tell him, yeah, you're not licensed. Just admit it. You know, like Saying I have a driver's license does not make you sound better in that situation. The idea that Bill Cosby didn't have a medical doctor as a defense expert blows my mind again. And I know attorneys that know his defense attorney, and I've consistently been told he's one of the absolute best. And so that says two things to me. This might have been the best expert they could get. <laughs> Or, um, you know, all these other attorneys that I know know him or don't know what they're talking about. And I, I don't believe that for a second. Um, it's very possible this is the best expert he can get. And, yeah, I, I read the same article. <laughs> My license. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, Indiana expert, the bar is pretty low. Is it going to be helpful to the trier of fact? So I'm not saying this person could not have been an expert. But it just seems like, you know, for a whole high-profile case with this with a millionaire client, you would somebody else with a license you would think you would think uh that's all i got you got anything else i don't have anything else man all right so that's all the time we've got for this week uh we'll get with mark again soon to hopefully get back to some more regular episodes mark if anybody wants to get a hold of you about a legal question uh how can they get a hold of you just google mark lopez mark with a c or give me a call 317-632-3642 All right, on our next episode, I'm going to share a conversation with Marion County Prosecutor Terry Curry, talk about various issues and challenges facing Indianapolis with crime and running the prosecutor's office. If you have any comments about this podcast or have any ideas for topics for us to discuss, you can email me at indylawpod at gmail.com. You can find this podcast with our past episodes at soundcloud.com forward slash indylawpod. Thanks again, Mark.